Well, it's great to be with you this morning. It's great to be here to finish up this year-long quest. Actually, this morning, I feel a bit like this guy. I feel like the closer because we've been through nine long innings of this quest journey, and now I have the assignment, don't blow it. I should have had my own walk-up music, right? Um, Honestly, it's probably a pretty good spot for me because I can throw a little heat but probably can't last for more than an inning. So you need to hang on this morning. It's the book of Revelation. You need to focus. There may be a fastball or two, and there may be a couple of curves. You know, we all have questions for God. You often hear people say, if you could ask God, one question, what will it be? Well, one of my questions would be, God, why in your sovereignty did you allow the Bible to be put together in such a way that it would end with such a confusing book? You know, if it were me, I would have probably ended the Bible with something like the book of Revelations, like a very methodical theological explanation of God's plan for the world. Of course, I would probably choose a Western over Star Trek. So, so there you go. And the truth is that you might have found that ending a bit boring, but we love to use our imagination, and we often learn best when we have the opportunity to use our imagination. I was thinking about C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis could have just written mere Christianity, but instead he wrote the tales of Narnia to create a sense of wonder and imagination about God's story by the use of symbolism. So I can imagine God wanted to end the Bible with something that would capture our imagination for centuries, sort of a biblical Game of Thrones. And if that was his desire, it's worked brilliantly because there's never been a more discussed part of Scripture than the book of Revelations. Now, let me begin with a couple of disclaimers. First of all, if you're here to hear a comprehensive, detailed look at every piece of the book of Revelation, you're going to be a bit disappointed. You will need to come back for the Revelation class in the Honor Academy in January. We just don't have enough time to get that far into the weeds. While there are good answers to the meaning of dragons and lampstands and horsemen and beasts, we won't get to all that unless you want to be here to sundown. But what we will do is try to help you see how the book of Revelation fits with where we've been this year and about our hope for the future. I describe the lampstands and dragons and beasts as symbols because Revelation is a book filled with symbolic imagery. John was using the form of a letter and he used symbolic imagery, uh, apocalyptic language to describe things that were happening at that time and also things that were to come. One New Testament scholar used the illustration of one of these military tables where military commanders, they moved these little flags all over the table and the flags uh, represent things that are happening in the present and battles yet to come. John is describing the challenging circumstances 
of first century Christians. They are facing the beast, most probably the emperor Domitian, who was brutally persecuting Christians and requiring people to refer to him as Lord and God. And at the same time, John is looking forward to our ultimate future. He describes the appearance of Jesus this way. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look. I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Write what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. So Revelation is a book about real events that were taking place in John's time in the first century. The real seven churches in his world. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 describes those seven churches. Jesus gives them both praise and warnings. To the church in Ephesus, he said, he knows your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance, but you have forsaken the love you had at first. In Smyrna, he says, he knows your poverty and what you're about to suffer, but be faithful even to the point of death. In Pergamon, he knows that you remain true and did not renounce your faith, but some among you are attracted by false idols. In Thyatira, he knows your deeds, love, faith, and service, but you tolerate a false teacher that misleads people to sin. In Sardis, he knows you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains. In Philadelphia, he knows your deeds, that you have kept his word and not denied his name, but you hold on to what you have so no one will take your crown. And finally, in Laodicea, he knows that you are lukewarm. You say you are rich and do not need a thing, but you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. John was dealing with real situations in real churches, and he was using highly symbolic language to explain the ultimate future. Now, this type of language seems strange to us, but it was very normal in that time. So Revelation is a book of symbols, but it's not a book of codes. Like so many stories that we have read throughout this year in Quest, they describe real people, real events, and yet God is pointing us towards something more. However, as a pastor, I must warn you against people that treat Revelation as a code book that say that they can predict the future through its symbolism. You should be very wary of people that claim that they have decoded the book of Revelation and know the specific time and place for future and current events. I've noticed that their decoding almost is always a money-making proposition. It's a great way to draw a crowd. It's a great way to sell a book or make a movie or have your own YouTube channel. But it's not a great way to equip God's people with real Christian hope. 
Just last week, we had a blood moon on the day of the midterm elections. And the internet was filled with some of these code breakers making predictions. I got on and checked some of them out, and they believed that because the moon was a blood moon that day, and because uh, the election was happening that day, and there was a new government in Israel, some of them predicted the exact number they believed of people that would be elected to the Senate and the House. Now, you need to be very wary of people that try to decode the book of Revelation in this way. So be, be warned, there are preachers that do all kinds of crazy things around the book of Revelation. Just in the last couple of weeks, I was on Instagram and I saw an image of a well-known Atlanta pastor on the plain of Armageddon in Israel. Nice picture, Chuck. <laughs> I was at once at an event with a British friend of mine and someone started with one of these crazy scenarios and he leaned over to me in his British accent and said, absolutely desperate theology. We don't have to fall for desperate theology. We have been on this journey this year and we don't have to fall for people peddling sensationalism and fear. We don't have to try to decode our God because we have seen what he is doing through his people through the generations. Throughout this year we have seen his faithfulness. We have seen him from the moment of creation breathe into the nostrils of Adam and walk with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. From the promise he made to Abraham to bless all the nations, to the exodus and the rescue of his people from Egypt. How he worked through good kings and bad kings, how he gave his people the promised land and he brought them back from exile and at long last, how Christ came making the once and for all sacrifice for us. And finally, how the spirit that breathed into Adam was breathed into the early church and equipped us to follow him. Our faith is not dependent on the shifting sands of mysterious codes and theories. Our faith is based on the truth of Scripture, a story of what God has done and continues to do in and through us. In all and through all, God has been working out his plan for humankind. Step by step, he has been working things together for the good of those who love him and are called to his purpose. As Michael Bird writes, we know how the story goes, we know who it is about, and we know how it ends, not with a whimper, but with new creation. And then I saw a new heaven and earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. 
They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I am making everything new. Not I have made everything new, not maybe somewhere in the future I might make everything new. He is making everything new. And that process began with Jesus' resurrection and will finally be completed in the new heaven and the new earth. So that's where we find ourselves this morning. We find ourselves in between the resurrection and the new creation, what we often describe as the already but not yet. And this, in this in-between time, the world can still be a place of pain and hardship. It's a place of chaos, war, sickness, and disasters. A lot of us remember just a few years ago this tsunami in Japan that killed 20,000 people and uh, their nuclear plant melted down and thousands of people were forced from their homes. Tsunamis like this occur when the tectonic plates collide and one is forced underneath the other. If big enough and close enough to the floor of the ocean, the energy from such an earthquake can cause the ocean floor to suddenly rise and fall, and this disruption is where one plate overlaps and creates a tsunami. We live in a similar spiritual tension. We live in what N.T. Wright calls the overlap of the ages. And in this time between the resurrection of Jesus and his return, we live in the overlap of heaven and earth. We live in the friction of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And in that in-between place is a place of chaos and struggle and evil. But a day is coming when the friction will end and evil will pass away. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I don't know about you, but a literal reading of this seems a bit depressing to me. No sea? You mean I have to live eternally without a beach? No, that's not what it means. Well, throughout Scripture, the sea has been used as symbolism for evil and chaos. We remember Noah when the flood came, uh, Noah on top of the flood waters. We remember God parting the Red Sea as his people fled Egypt. We remember Jesus walking on the Sea of Galilee. More examples of actual events that occurred but also had a symbolic meaning of God overcoming the sea, overcoming evil. And when the new creation, the new heaven and earth come, there will be no more sea. A beach, yes, but evil, no. However, today in this time during the overlap of the ages, 
even with Jesus on the throne, we coexist in a world that is inhabited by evil. Jesus described this reality to his disciples this way. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let them grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Let both grow together until the harvest. The wheat is still growing among the weeds. And sometimes it can feel like the weeds are choking out the good. On many days, the events of our day scream that evil is winning. However, we know that on the cross, Jesus took evil's best shot. And we know that the harvest is coming and the victory has already been won. We're all familiar with the D-Day landing in 1944 when the Allies hit the beach at Normandy to save the world from a particularly form of evil at that time. And that battle was so hard because both the Nazis and the Allies knew that if that battle was won, if we gained a foothold on the beaches of France, the war was essentially won. It wouldn't be but a matter of time until they were swept across France and out of history. On that day, the victory was won, even though many battles would be fought in the months ahead. That's our reality today. The victory was won the day Jesus stepped from the tomb, but the battles go on until he returns in glory. A couple of weeks ago, I was in Washington, D.C., and while there, I visited the Holocaust Museum for the first time. It's filled with stories of the weeds of evil choking out life. I was particularly moved on at the last display, which uh, is a collection of shoes from a concentration camp in Poland. Shoes that people removed moments before being gassed. As I stood and looked at those shoes, I could imagine the people that wore them. They were men's dress shoes, maybe from a banker or an attorney. They were boots that might have been worn by a farmer. Women's shoes that might have been worn by a teacher. And shoes with heels and straps worn by a woman with a sense of style, even as she boarded a train to a death camp. And then finally, tiny shoes of small children before the promise of their lives was taken away. Each pair 
of shoes represented a life that was choked out by evil. Now the truth is that many of the victims that wore these shoes lost their lives in the last year of the war after the Allies had landed at Normandy and ultimate victory was assured. Through Christ, the victory is already won. And yet in the overlap of heaven and earth, in this time in between, evil is a reality until Christ returns for all eternity to dwell with us. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. Remember when our quest began back in January? Remember God in the Garden of Eden in the place where he walked with Adam and Eve, the place where God dwelled with the first man and woman. Eden was, in a sense, the first sanctuary of God where he dwelled with humanity. And all throughout the biblical narrative, even after the fall, he continued to move toward his people. Despite all their failures, God continued to show his presence. After he rescued his people from slavery in the wilderness, he was present in the tabernacle and said, I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. Eventually, a physical temple was constructed in Jerusalem and God's presence was there. But it was just a miniature model of God's cosmic temple in the new heaven and the new earth. And then Christ came, Emmanuel, God with us, making that once and for all sacrifice that made the temple obsolete. The story that began in a garden was fulfilled in a garden on Easter morning. Through his resurrection, Christ provided both the model and the means of our renewal. From the Garden of Eden to the tabernacle, to the temple, to the cross, and finally to the new creation. God dwells with his people and he will do so for all eternity. Theologian Greg Beale describes it this way, the presence of the temple, the glorious presence of God sheds its Old Testament architectural cocoon by emerging in Christ and then dwelling in his people and finally dwelling throughout the whole earth. At this time, this in-between time, this in-between time in this point of friction, we are called to be new creation people, exhibiting love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and generosity and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. We, God's people, empowered by the Spirit, are the model and the means for the restoration of all things. As I read the description of the seven churches, I wondered, what would it look like if we were church number eight? What would Jesus say about us? Are we known for our deeds 
and our faith and perseverance? Do we have a reputation for being alive? Have we remained true and faithful? Have some of us maybe forsaken our first love? And how many of us would really be described as just lukewarm? Jesus knows us as he knew the churches in Revelations. And we have an opportunity to write our story with this life. Because in this time in between, in the friction of heaven and earth, we are called to be new creation people living in anticipation of what's to come. Remember when we used to carry pictures of our loved ones in our wallet and and now we we have them in our phones and they remind us of those we love when we're not together and then at a time like this around Thanksgiving maybe when we are with them and around the table we no longer have to look at pictures because we can see them. That's our hope. That's our future. When we rise we will see him. As the great spiritual says, on that great getting up morning, we will see him face to face. We won't need tabernacles, we won't need temples, because the presence of God will flood the creation. And he will have brought justice to the nations, and he will dwell with us forever. The truth is that Revelation is not about a place we are going, but it is a new world that is coming. A new world where we will dwell with him for all eternity. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, because the truth is Jesus Christ is the real closer. Won't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your story that we have engaged in for all these months. We thank you that time and again we have seen your faithfulness. And Lord, we can lean on the truth that you are indeed coming again to dwell with us for all of eternity. We pray this in your name. Amen.